Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Pastor Solomon. Pastor Solomon's become a dear friend to me, and uh, you have many great pastors here at Evangelical Chinese Church, and really, it is a privilege for me to be uh, worshiping Jesus with you today. Thank you for inviting me. After Pastor Solomon preached at University Presbyterian Church, he did such a great job, they didn't want to invite me to uh, come back into the pulpit. <laughs> so I'm getting a little help with my sound system here. Hearing me is overrated, actually. <laughs> but, uh, and I know a few of you were out serving with our sister congregations this past, uh, well, yesterday. I wonder how many of you got out to, you, those of you who are young adults, and uh, to, went to Food Lifeline with Mount Zion and UPC yesterday. Are some of you here got out of bed early? Yeah, there was a barbecue, I know, at someone's house. Great job. Thank you guys for doing that. That's the kind of thing the Kindred Project is about. Uh, churches coming together, serving Jesus, making a difference in our city. Well, I uh, bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ at University Presbyterian Church. A few of them are here. By the way, Keith Blackus is his birthday today, so we're celebrating many things. 22 years old. Uh, but it is really a privilege for me to be here, not just because it's an honor to uh, worship with you, to be the, invited to bring God's word, which is always an honor. Uh, I don't come here so much as a preacher. Uh, I don't come here uh, just as a student, although I have a lot to learn from you. I come here really as a brother. Uh, this is a family reunion, and you make me feel at home when I'm here, and I want to thank you for that. Truly, we are a family, and I want to talk to you today about a little bit more about what that means uh, to be a family. So I thought I would show you a picture of uh, my family. <laughs> this is the how did, what happened to our babies picture. Uh, they grow up so quickly. Um, but that's the Hinman family. But I'm really, I don't want to talk to you so much about uh, your biological family. I'm, I'm not talking about the, the family that you have by blood. I'm talking about the family you have by the blood of Christ. I'm not talking about the people that you live with, or may live with. I'm talking about the people you share life with, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. This is a whole new family. This is an exciting family. This is actually our primary family. I want you to turn around a little bit and just look around the, the room and just see who's next to you. I know Presbyterians don't like to turn their neck, and, and especially when they're sitting so close to somebody, but it looks like you're doing that. Look at these faces. This is your family. Scary, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And as you look around the room, as I look around the room, I see different color faces. I see people who uh, are from different parts of the world, people who enjoy different kinds of cuisine, uh, all different types of cultures. People speak different languages. And that's the way it ought to be. We have a multi-ethnic family of God. Someone says that when we get to the end, we're all going to be gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ to worship. And what we're going to see is every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And that's our family. And so we have this incredible privilege of living with the family today, and that's the family that I want to speak to you about today, and I want to do it by introducing you to a friend of mine, and maybe he's also a friend of yours, named Jonah. Way back in the day, uh, 8th century BC, there was a man named Jonah, and unfortunately, your preacher relates to him all too well. Uh, so let's open our Bible to Jonah chapter 1. If you bring a Bible, please turn to Jonah 1, uh, verse, the first three verses, and uh, if you're like me, you always have to go to the table of contents to find the book of Jonah because it's like only two pages, so there's no way you can use the usual method that I use and sort of flip through and find it. But I'd love for you to look at it. I'm going to also put it out on the screen, but you might like to, to see uh, what, I, what I'm teaching you about in your own 
uh, text. Jonah hears these words from the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, in our church at this point, I would say, this is the word of the Lord, and uh, I'm going to try that on you, and uh, if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just heard never will. Brothers and sisters, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the very first word was, arise. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise. Some of our translations don't even bother to translate this word because if you're going to go, you have to first arise, but not the ESV. I'm glad it's there. The word suggests to the Hebrew reader that Jonah is in some posture of repose, that perhaps Jonah is sleeping, Uh, perhaps Jonah is stuck. Maybe he's even spiritually dead. And this word is a word that calls Jonah to wake up, to to an awareness of what God is doing in the world. Wake up. Arise. Now, you may today feel like I'm a little sleepy. I may be uh, lying down. I may in some way be stuck in my life. I may even be in some ways spiritually dead. This word arise is a word that Jesus uses, and he does use it for someone who is dead. You may remember the story of Jairus' daughter. Uh, Jairus is the leader of the synagogue in Jesus' day, and his daughter was sick, and Jesus gets interrupted by another uh, uh, hurt person. He heals her of a hemorrhage, and during that delay, Jairus' daughter passes away, and uh, they're spreading the word about her death, and we read in Mark 5, 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And then he walks into the home, and a few people come in, and he sees this dead child, like literally, you know, not just lying down, not just asleep, but actually fully dead. And what does he say to her? Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. That uh, is Aramaic, which is a, a related language to Hebrew. Kumi is the same word that Jonah hears. It's actually kum in Hebrew. It just means arise. The point is that God has a word for Jonah, and it's get up, wake up, come to life, become aware of what's happening around you, become aware of who I am and what I'm doing in the world. Now, for Jonah, this call to awareness is in particular a call to an awareness of other people. Wake up to the people in your life. Not only people, but other peoples. Wake up to the peoples in the world. I say that because the text goes on. The Lord says, uh, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, we don't know whether that word evil uh, means wickedness or it could also mean disaster. They've had a hard time in the 8th century in Nineveh. There's been a lot of trouble. And so the reader's kind of left with this question of what's wrong in, in Nineveh? And at this moment, we don't really know what's wrong in Nineveh. The point is, Jonah doesn't care, right? Because Nineveh's not my city. Remember, Jonah's an Israelite. It'd be one thing if God said, wake up to Jerusalem, wake up to Samaria, wake up to Bethel, wake up to Jericho, the places of Israel. These are my cities. These are my people. And God says, no, I want you to wake up to Nineveh. I want you to pull out the morning news and give a rip about what I'm doing in a place with people that are very much not like you. Would you wake up to that? Actually, the book of Jonah is not just this cute little flannel graph story about a chubby little guy who lives with a lantern inside of a whale. That's what I was taught growing up. Actually, this is a rather hard-edged book. The book of Jonah is Israel's own prophetic critique of its ethnocentricity. That's why Jonah's in the Bible, to remind Israel that just because they're the first nation to be blessed doesn't mean they're the only nation to be blessed. They're blessed to be a blessing, and it's a pretty easy step between being blessed by God first and becoming convinced that you're the only one God wants to bless. So wake up. Arise. You'll see as you read and study the book of of Jonah in this light that it's all about Israel's ethnocentricity. Even just in the first chapter here, he's going to be on a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors who end up more like true Israelites than Jonah does. And he's going to be the one ending up like a pagan. And God's saying, in effect, you think I don't care about people who are not Jewish, not Israelites? You think that they can't be beautiful followers, children of mine? Come on, wake up. I don't know how many of you know Pastor Alex Tsui. He's listed first in the name of uh, bulletins on the back of your bulletin. He's the pastor at the Mandarin Congregation in Seattle. So um, I really enjoyed getting to know Pastor Alex. And one day he said to me, he said, you know, George, uh, the Chinese people see themselves or used to see themselves as the center of the world. And I thought that was so interesting because I thought that I was the center of the world. I mean, really, growing up as a kid, all the schools and the atlases and everything, where every time we saw a map, it was nor- what was in the middle? North America, right there. I'm also, I could t- I, California seemed to me to be right in the middle of all things. This is where, where I grew up. Of course, you know, we always see ourselves at, at the center. So, you know, this, think about this word ethnocentricity. What does it mean, ethnocentricity? It's to put your ethnic identity at the center of your life. Right? Nothing wrong. We, uh, you know, our ethnic identity is a rich part of who we are. But when it becomes the center of who you are, it's time for you to wake up. See, so you're, you better arise, and that's the move that God is trying to make here in, in Jonah's life. As we and we we'll see that as this book continues. So the Kindred Project is, is an experience of being this rich, multi-ethnic family of God. And this morning, I want to share a little bit more of the story of how the Kindred Project came to be because Pastor Solomon gives me a little bit too much credit. I, I like it, but I don't deserve it. Um, let me tell you how this got started, this partnership between Evangelical Chinese Church and Mount Zion Baptist Church and University Presbyterian Church. It was last summer. I was on sabbatical. My wife, Anne, who's here, uh, uh, and I were up in uh, Vancouver, B.C. I was taking classes at Regent College, which is part of uh, University of British Columbia, 
And uh, we had a great life. We would bike to class, come back, warm up some frozen food, watch the news, go out and play in Vancouver. Well, I don't know if you remember, it was one week ago this week, uh, the first full week of July 2016, it was the worst news cycle I could remember, possibly the worst news cycle in America since 9-11. You remember what happened a year ago? There were office, we call them officer-involved shootings. By the way, if this were the Philippines or, or Manila, we would call them extrajudicial killings. In America, we call them officer-involved shootings. And uh, the first one was on Tuesday. It was Alton Sterling. And so we came home and we watched the news about Alton Sterling. It was a horrible story. Then, just when you think it can't get any worse, come back on Wednesday and there's another officer-involved shooting, Philando Castile. And then again, on Thursday, oh my gosh, Adam Smith. And then there were two on Thursday. News came later, Vincent Ramos, Thursday. That next day. And then Friday, when we woke up, we were sucked into the news cycle. Before we went to class, we watched. Remember what was happening in Dallas, Texas? Police officers were being shot, and they were, they were dying on the streets of Dallas. Lauren Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa. What a tragic week. You do remember it now that I've read those names for you. It was absolutely devastating. Lives being lost. And the question is, what in the world can we do about this? It was not that long ago that we were talking with the election of uh, Pre President Barack Obama that perhaps we live now in a post-racial society. Does anybody think we live in a post-racial society anymore? It's impossible to say that. We are deeply divided as a country, as a culture, as a world. The conflicts around the world that are raging are growing out in almost every instance of ethnic tension. People who are struggling with their ethnocentricity against the ethnocentricity of somebody else. And so this is a moment for us to really wake up to the evil, wake up to the disaster, whatever it is, it's a problem. And it breaks God's heart. As we'll see, God gives Jonah a solution that he's also going to give to you and me. What do you need to wake up and hear in your life this morning? Maybe it's wake up to the people around you. Maybe it's wake up to other peoples. Maybe you feel just somehow deep inside that the rut you're walking through has become so deep it's almost like you're stuck or you're dead. Well, God has a word for you, brother, sister, and it's arise, arise. That's God's first word to Jonah. But then there's a second one. When the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the second word is go. Let me get the... There we go. No, there we don't go. Here we go. Second word is go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Why go? I go. Well, because it's just no good being awake if you're still lying around, right? Thanks, Mom, on Saturday morning. Um, it's one thing to be awake, but we've got this thing on our uh, clock radio that's called the snooze button, 
And I could be awake and hit snooze and snooze and snooze and snooze. And uh, it's no good being awake if you don't get up and go do something. See, it's, it's no good knowing that there's a problem in the world if you don't go do something about it. I mean, there's no good knowing that there's a problem in the world and that there's a solution that can fix the problem. It's no good knowing that there's a problem in the world, that there's a solution that you can fix the problem, and that you have a contribution you could make if you don't go. So God says to Jonah, get moving. Get moving. I want to tell you on the issue of race, here's what I know as a white man in America. If I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. So I know I need to go. It's not enough just to know that racism is wrong. It's not enough just to know that we have a problem. It's not enough just to know that I am tempted to be ethnocentric in every turn. I've got to get up and get out of that hole and go do something about it. And God calls Jonah to go, to go across lines of ethnicity to this foreign place, a foreign people. But as you know the story, Jonah, of course, says no. And uh, I just want to remind you Joppa is where he gets on a boat. He's supposed to go east, and he goes west. Tarshish, we think, is in Spain. He doesn't just go. He's, he's, that's a, that's a, seriously AWOL. That's about as far away from the other direction as a good Israelite could possibly imagine getting. So he's saying, no, thank you. <laughs> I have other plans for my life. Why would Jonah do this? Why would Jonah do this? I think it's because he's suspicious and the reason Jonah is suspicious is because there is a history here. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And they are enemies of the Israelites. Nineveh itself is an unjust city. These are Jonah's enemies. These are Jonah's oppressors. Actually, in the, in the last generation, 10,000 Israelites were killed by the people of Nineveh. In this generation... The Assyrians are extracting tribute from Israelite cities. They're they're oppressing, they're ruling. The Israelites are not a free people. They're enslaved right now to the Assyrians. In the next generation, the Assyrians are going to sweep into town, destroy Israel, and deport its people. Okay? So these are nasty people. And, and, and Jonah has every right to be suspicious of them because they have a history. It goes back generations. This is the way they treat us. This is the way we respond to them. No, thank you. I don't have anything to do with those people. So, you know, he's right. He's absolutely right to be suspicious. Let me state what may be, the, may be obvious to you uh, this morning. As I, a white man, come to you from across the lake, a mostly white congregation, and invite you to go with us to address a, a racial problem. If, if you're hearing me talk to you and invite you to go with us to make a difference in race in Seattle, Puget Sound, and you feel maybe just a little bit suspicious, I want to say to you, you have every right to, to feel suspicious. You're justified in that because we have a history too. Last fall, there was a hashtag. Uh, maybe some of you saw it. This is 2016. Hashtag, this is 2016. Uh, It was started by a man named Michael Liu. Michael Liu was walking on the sidewalk in New York City with his daughter. And uh, a woman in her mid-40s across the street shouted out to him, go back to your country, go back to China. 
Now, Michael Lou had to explain to his daughter what this woman was talking about because his daughter was born in America and Michael was born in America. And this is his country. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Liu uh, went to Harvard University and he's an editor of the New York Times. And this hashtag became a place for Asian Americans to be really honest about how exhausting it is to constantly uh, feel these ethnic tensions even though this is my country. And one of the places you, know, you tend to uh, feel it is when people ask, where are you from? And you say, yeah, I'm from Tucson, I'm from Portland, I'm from Chicago, and they go, no, 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 I mean, where are you from from? Oh my gosh, and what's the subtext? It's you don't belong here. I don't care if you're third generation, fourth generation, this is just not your place. You have to constantly tell me where your answer, well, where am I from? I don't even know, you know, but I'm from somewhere else. And then I don't see it as a white person in America. I don't see the hypocrisy of asking questions like that. Well, that's an example of our history inside the church. Let me give you an example outside of the church. Let me give you an example of our history outside the church. In, sorry, inside the church. A little bit of a history lesson. In 1961, 1961, the civil rights movement in America was just ramping up. And um, Mount Zion Baptist Church, your sister congregation on Capitol Hill, had an opportunity to invite Martin Luther King Jr. to come to speak in Seattle. How cool would that be? Well, the pastor of that church, Reverend Dr. Samuel B. McKinney, pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church, young African-American pastor, had gone to Morehouse College with Martin Luther King Jr. They were classmates there. And so he reached out to Dr. King and said, hey, would you come up to Seattle and speak? And Dr. King said, you know, actually, um, Brother Samuel Seattle is not exactly the epicenter of the civil rights movement right now. We're kind of busy down here in Birmingham. And he goes, oh, please, please just come up and do a weekend. So Martin Luther King Jr. agrees to come up to Seattle to give a, a talk to our city. And uh, Pastor McKinney uh, doesn't have a large enough venue for the crowds that will come. And so he walks down from Capitol Hill to downtown to a church that has a large sanctuary. It's called First Presbyterian Church of Seattle. On a handshake, these two pastors agree to co-host Dr. King's lecture. Well, that was early. Later on, as the publicity goes out, the heat turns up, and uh, there's a lot of tension in the city, as it turns out. And you know what happens? First Presbyterian Church backs out. They pulled out of the contract. And I have to live with the reality that someone very much like me said no to Martin Luther King Jr. Close the door on him. Now, some people might be tempted to say, oh, George, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, you weren't even born yet. That's history, which, all of which is true. But I'm here to tell you that history matters, friends. That the things that happened yesterday set the context for whatever can happen today. And so history matters. And so today, if you're aware that we have a history in this country of not coming together, of not being like a family, and you feel the little slightest bit suspicious around someone coming to say we should do this, you are justified. You are totally justified. Our fears are real that this could never work. But I want to tell you that the real danger for Jonah 
is not his suspicions of the Ninevites, however justified they are. His, the real problem, the real danger for Jonah is that he's suspicious of God. And that would be true for you too. If your suspicions of other people translates into your suspicions of God, then you have a real problem. Let me just show you why this is true. Turn your Bible to Jonah chapter 4. It's so interesting that the storyteller masterfully withholds the motive of his antagonist until the last chapter of the book. We probably think he's not going to go to Nineveh because he's suspicious of the Ninevites for reasons I've already shared. But in fact, Jonah says, actually, that's not why I didn't go. The reason I didn't go, God, is because I'm suspicious of you. <laughs> it's because I, because I know who you are. L listen to what he says. Uh, by the way, this is after he's gone and Nineveh's repented. And, and now, you know, most preachers would be delighted to see our, our audience repent, right? I mean, when's the last time people still repented when they heard me preach? Uh, Jonah should be thrilled, right? Oh, that's Pastor George. You don't have to do what he says, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Well, again, actually, the whole city repents. And so Jonah's oddly furious. He says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord... <laughs> Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, when this whole thing began? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I didn't go. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Isn't that the most beautiful theological statement? Isn't that the worst reason not to go? He's suspicious of God. You know, and I, I just knew it. I knew you would treat them the way you treat me. I know that just as you're ever gracious with me and all of my sin, you'd be gracious with the Assyrians. I knew that just the way you pursue me, even to the ends of the earth with this great fish, you'd pursue them, that you're after them in love with the way that you delight in me. You delight in them. I just know it because I know this is who you are, and I couldn't bear to see it happen. This is the most dangerous kind of suspicion at all. And the danger is that we can't both have God as he really is and have our ethnicity at the center of our lives and our story. These words, by the way, are not new words. Do they sound familiar to you? We have any Bible scholars in here? Gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is a direct quote from some other place in the Bible. You know where it comes from? The the Exodus. This is, what, this is how God revealed himself to Israel, the Exodus. Remember, Israel was enslaved to another ethnicity, the Egyptians, and God says, it's not going to work because this is who I am. I am making covenant with you. I am rescuing you. I am blessing you because this is who I am. And now the scandal for Jonah is that God intends to be this God for all the nations of the earth. He's just beautifully consistent, ever gracious, steadfast in his love, abounding in steadfast love. Well, I want to encourage you to go. You see, what God is saying to Jonah is, I have a history too, you know. I have a history of rescuing people. I have a history of bringing people together. I have a history of creating family where it doesn't exist. Remember, this was the, the history of Israel from the very beginning. Abram, Abram Genesis 12, 1, God says to him, go. 
not to be the only family ever blessed, but to be the one family that blesses all the families of the earth. So go. That's what it means to go. And Israel and, and Jonah is enough of a Jew to, to know that. By the way, we've been called to go for family reasons as well. Jesus, follow, following the resurrection, uh, says to his disciples, they're gathered there in Matthew 28. Matthew tells us they're doubting. And Jesus says to them what? Go. Make disciples of all the nations. By the way, that word nations, there is ethnoi. It's not geopolitical entities. It's not some sort of State Department mission or multi-corporate business plan. All the ethnoi, all the ethnicities, the rich ethnic diversity of this creation go and make disciples of them. To baptize them is to recognize that they, we all belong to the same family. So go. Arise, friends, and go. What does it mean to go for you? What does it mean to go find people who don't speak the language that you speak, don't eat the food that you don't eat, that you, uh, that you do eat, watch different movies, play different video games? What's it, what would it mean for you to go through a part of town that you don't normally go through? What would it mean for you to listen to someone who different political beliefs than you do? Go. Well, I want to tell you a little bit more about the Kindred Project because I did arise. That, uh, that week of news in July was very unsettling, and I thought, what am I going to do with this? What would I do with this? And the answer was go. I had to go. Here's what happened. That last day, uh, the Dallas shootings, was the day before we were going down to Seattle. We would, as I say, we were on sabbatical, taking several trips. Occasionally, we'd come back to Seattle to make sure our house hadn't been burned down by our children and to do our laundry and to repack for another adventure. As it happened, the one day we were back in Seattle after this horrible week of shootings uh, was Sunday. So where could I go for worship? I mean, I'm on sabbatical. I can't go to UPC. I don't want to confuse anybody. Really, I didn't want them to see how tan I was. And so I got to find another church. Well, I thought, how about Mount Zion Baptist Church? It's a church you read about in the newspaper all the time. I'd been pastor at UPC uh, for almost nine years, eight years, and uh, had never been to Mount Zion, had never met anyone. I would ask people at UPC, what about this Mount Zion folks? They seem kind of interesting to me. They say, yeah, it's a great church, but we've never really had much to do with them. And so I thought, I want to be with my African-American brothers and sisters who are brokenhearted and stand in solidarity with them. So we went to worship. They have a 7.30 worship service, and, uh, which is perfect because we had a lot of laundry to do. And I, it was a very uncomfortable morning for us. It was very hard to be there. Not because they weren't perfectly hospitable. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was as generous as you are as a congregation, really welcomed us. And yet, the truth is, uh, that was a, a brutally hard Sunday to process for this community and for us. The pastor, Aaron Williams, is a, a great preacher. And he preached that day on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you ever heard a sermon where it feels like you're the only one in the room? Has it ever happened to you? People tell me that it happens to them. That was, it was my experience. It was like all of a sudden everybody grays out and, and there's just me and Pastor Aaron as he talks about the Good Samaritan because he says, you know, remember the story of the Good Samaritan is about somebody who crossed lines of ethnicity to help someone who's hurt. And uh, he says, it wasn't the clergy who helped. And I, I did, uh, they have you introduce everybody, and I very smartly didn't say I was a pastor when I got up to introduce myself. I just said, I'm George from University Presbyterian Church. Because he said, um, the, the priest went around the person in need, the Levite went around the person in need. 
God's not looking for people of the cloth. He's looking for people of the towel, Aaron said, like only to me. And then he reminded us what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said, if, you know, people keep getting hurt on the same road day after day, month after month, year after year, at some point, yeah, it's good to help hurting people, but at some point, you've got to fix the road. Okay? And I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that in America, we've got to fix this road. We've got to do something about this. Dr. King is right. So I introduced myself to Pastor uh, Aaron at the door, and he said, he said, George, let's have lunch together. And I said, I can't. I'm going to California. Um, and I, did, I was planning out my sermons for the rest of the year for three weeks. I couldn't stop thinking about how would we, the followers of Jesus Christ, fix the road even in Seattle, let's forget about America, let's just focus on Puget Sound. What would that look like? Couldn't stop thinking and praying about it. When I came back, I said, we got to get pull churches together. And so I took that lunch with Pastor Aaron, and I, I invited Pastor Alex Sway to come, and we had this lunch together, and we started meeting together. And now Pastor Solomon and many of your pastors and elders are, are having lunch together, and we're praying together, we're worshiping together, we're serving together. This is a kindred project. This is our way of going. But finally, there's another word. And it's this, when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the last word is believe. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. (laughs) In the end, the last word, the great word, came to Jonah, not from his people, but from the other people. Nineveh's, Ninevites say back to him, believe. You don't hear the Lord articulating this word directly to Jonah. It comes indirectly, but it comes on every page of this book. It asks its readers to believe, to believe that there is a God who is great enough and powerful enough and involved enough that pagan sailors could start to worship like Israelites. The great fish could sustain a drowning man for three days. That a pagan city, a wicked city, could repent and become a a model of revival for all the world to see, that a tree could sprout up very quickly and provide shade for a cranky prophet. Believe. Believe. Remember what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter, to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. The people who say he's dead, that word is not the last word. The word of God calling us to faith is the last word. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, finally, where in our city are people today who believe in this God? Where in our divisions are people today who believe in this God, who can do what we cannot do on our own, but who's eager to express His steadfast love in a new family? God has given us His Word. We have great news, friends. Jacques Ellul, the French sociologist, says the word of the Lord is not just words. It's a power which exists and manifests itself. It transforms what it touches. The word of the Lord can't be anything but creative and salvific. It never fails to take effect. When the word of the Lord intervenes in a situation, it changes the situation. The word of the Lord has spoken to you and to me. We know the word of the Lord is not just power. It's not just words, but it's not just power either. It's a person. Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who has invited us here this morning, the one who we've been worshiping in our songs and prayers, Jesus is the Word of God, and that's good news. 
the Lamb is on the throne. He is victory. Victory. Do not fear, only believe. Believe, Jesus says, that I am your peace, that I am life for the dead, grace for the sinner, that I, by my blood, have brought those who are far off near, that I have destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall that separates people from one another, that I've created in myself the one new humanity. Believe. When we believe, Jesus changes the whole context of our lives and our city. First of all, He changes the individual's relationship to culture. He disrupts our ethnocentricity, puts something else in there. He puts Christ in there. You know, the word Christocentric. You want to be a Christocentric person where Christ is at the center, not your ethnicity. Changes the individual's relationship to culture. The other thing He does is He changes the structure of culture. We see this in Nineveh. Here, God's disrupting history. He's t addressing those places where power and injustice have been institutionalized in a way that's oppressive. And Nineveh repents, and this is indicated, even touches the, the animals, the whole city, the text tells. Even the animals are affected by this, which represents their culture and their economy. Willie James Jennings says, God is reclaiming the world through a singular family. He's an African-American theologian at Yale. Listen to this quote. I love this. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended on the disciples and drove them into the languages of the world to enact the joining desired by the Father of Jesus for all people. This is the coming of the one new reality of kinship. It means family. This, in effect, James Jennings writes, is the Creator reclaiming the world, opening the possibilities of boundary-shattering love between strangers and enemies. Jesus is the answer. And Pentecost, when we are thrust into the languages of the world, you're seeing the Creator saying, come home. You are all my people, one family in Christ. Fifty years after Martin Luther King Jr. visited Seattle and went to another hall, actually on UW's campus, a letter arrived at Mount Zion Baptist Church. It was just a few years ago. And we can imagine Pastor Samuel McKinney seeing the return address on that envelope and holding it over the trash can. Because you know what the return address was? It said, First Presbyterian Church, Seattle. The people who had turned away Martin Luther King. And you can just imagine him ready to drop that. But for some reason, he doesn't. He pulls his hand back and he opens up that envelope. And it's a letter from a new pastor now, 50 years later, at First Press Seattle. His name is Jeff Schultz, and here's the, what the letter said, Reverend Dr. Samuel McKinney, I understand that a great injustice took place at the hands of my congregation many years ago. I would like to meet with you to apologize. Jeff Schultz walked up the hill from downtown to Capitol Hill, Mount Zion Baptist Church, and Reverend McKinney received him as a brother in Christ, received his apology, and there was reconciliation. You know why that happened? Because Reverend McKinney believes. Because Jeff Schultz believes. And I'm here to tell you, as a white, middle-aged Presbyterian, that I believe. And I'm here daring to believe, as I look at your faces, that you believe also. And so let's do this. Let's believe that God can do what we cannot do by ourselves. Arise. Go. Find your new family and believe. There's nothing our city needs more than this right now. When I started working on this message, Seattle Times had eight stories 
on our racial divisions. Eight stories. I mean, there, how many stories are there in the Seattle Times now? It's so thin. Like, that was like half of them or more. You know, the rest were the Mariners. It wasn't pretty. I want to tell you, you have what your culture needs. How long has it been that the church has been this relevant to what society is struggling with? They know we have racial divides. They do not know what to do about it. You know the answer. Jesus is the answer. I mean, if, the, if reconciliation doesn't start with the followers of Jesus Christ, where else in the world do you think it's going to start? This is our moment. This is it. Let's rise up and believe the Word of God and live like a family. Just imagine what would happen if the Puget Sound area start to see people of different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different denominational traditions coming together and living like one family. They go, where did that come from? And how could I get myself some of that? This is our opportunity. So I want to invite you to the Kindred Project. These three great churches worshiping together as we have opportunities, break bread together in smaller groups, continue. I want to invite you to build relationships just as some of you did yesterday and to serve together. Let me close by this. I'll, I'll never forget the, last, uh, the, the first meeting when the three pastors got together for lunch. Pastor Alex, Pastor Aaron, and myself. It was Capitol Hill. We're squeezing into this little teeny booth. And um, one of your pastors, Pastor Alex, was very bold because this was an awkward situation. And he turned to the black pastor and he looked him in the face and he said, Pastor Aaron, I have lived in Seattle for many, many years, and I do not have a single African-American friend. We ate lunch together, and when the meal was over, we all stood up as we got squeezed out of that little booth. Pastor Aaron, the black pastor, looked at one of your pastors, Pastor Alex, and said, brother, you got one now. And that's when I realized the Kindred Project had begun. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, <laughs> what a beautiful, joyful union you three in one have enjoyed since eternity past. And it is such an unimaginable gift that you would open up this glorious eternal fellowship to welcome us in, your creatures. This is exactly what you've done in becoming human. The Son of God would take on flesh to join us in our humanity that we might join you in your divinity and be a part of this fellowship is mind-blowing. Thank you. Thank you for the presence of your Spirit right now in this room, in our lives, right here, drawing us to Jesus, leveraging everything that the triune God had has to draw us to Jesus. That's what you're doing right now. That's the invitation for us. And as you draw us to Jesus, the beauty is you draw us also to one another. We confess to you, we don't know how to be together. But we also profess that we believe your Holy Spirit knows how to make it happen. So pour out your Spirit today upon your people in this city. We pray it in the name of Jesus. We pray that he gets all the glory and credit. Amen.